We hope you are enjoying our expanded podcast schedule. For the month of July, we have something new for our members. Each month, members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of July, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code fireworks at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code fireworks. Thank you for your support. Hi, I'm Riley Fessler, producer of the DSR Family of Podcasts. This weekend's archive episode features a conversation between David Rothkoff, Corey Shockey, Ed Luce, and David Sanger about the 2022 NATO Summit in Madrid. We hope you enjoy. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. We've got the old gang gathered here around the stove to talk about what's going on in the world. It's a virtual stove because it's hot out there. It's summertime. We include in that gang the not-so-old Rosa Brooks, who is a professor at Georgetown Law School and the associate dean for, what is it these days now, Rosa? Institutions and stuff, stuff and nonsense. And appetizers. Yeah. So, uh, hi, Rosa. How are you? Hi, David. We also have with us David Sanger of the New York Times. How are you doing, David? Good, good. Good to be with you. And we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed? Great, thank you. Now, Ed, you were just in Europe for a while, and um, do you learn anything that you want to share with us? Yeah, I was in Poland um, for a week and then at a conference in Helsinki, and it was for book research reasons. As I probably told you, I'm doing a biography of Big Brzezinski, who was raised in Poland. But it happened to coincide with the NATO summit in Madrid, the sort of fairly Churchillian statements coming out of it, including by Biden about we'll pay any price, including higher gas prices. And Poland is, of course, on the front line, having until very recently been, you know, a pariah, not a pariah, but a sort of almost pariah twinned with Hungary, is now enjoying this newfound status as a a frontline country that's, I think, taken more refugees than everywhere else combined. And it's an extraordinary time to be there because, I mean, Warsaw is this sort of buzzing um, city. It was also a pretty extraordinary time to be in Helsinki because it's, I was there the day that they were admitted or that their application was admitted for, for NATO. Turkey's veto was uh, supposedly lifted, although you're never quite sure with Erdogan. So, you know, it's all, it's all happening in that part of, of Europe. The only place I didn't go was Madrid. Sounds like you were at a happening place at a happening time. David, looking at what happened at the NATO summit, 
it seemed of enormous consequence and did not get a ton of coverage here in the U.S.? Well, I think it was of consequence, David, for two or three reasons. The first is NATO did what it had been expected to do, which was for the first time in its new strategic concept, define Russia as one of its enduring challenges without calling it an adversary. The idea, which had been hatched, of course, before the invasion of uh, Ukraine, was to begin to shift NATO, like the United States, to think about Asia, the pivot, all of that. The reality was that by the time it came, the uh, members of NATO could think about nothing except Ukraine, which has had the wonder of unifying them, but on the other hand, is absorbing all of their resources, the arms, the support for Ukraine, and so forth. So while they were willing to give lip service to paying attention to China and its role, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence that they were actually willing to do much in the Pacific because their feelings so stretched in the arena for which NATO was initially conceived. The second thing that made it somewhat remarkable was the great tone of unity that continued about how we would pour arms and support to the Ukrainians for as long as it took. But just behind the scenes on that, I think there were the first doubts for the United States. There are many who believe that the amount that Congress has given them so far is basically kind of the end of the line. For the Europeans, I think there is a concern that as winter approaches and they're beginning to think about their gas supplies and the continued high cost of fuel, the enthusiasm will wane, particularly among the Western Europeans, not along those in the front line. And I'd say lastly, that the third thing that made this entire enterprise notable was that this was the moment for Biden to sort of cement his leadership for uh, the G7. And while I think clearly they, the members of the G7 and, and for NATO were relieved to see that his investment in the alliances has paid off, I think there's a nervousness about whether he will run again, what they've learned during the January 6th hearings, his age, all of these things combine to make them wonder whether they will look back at Joe Biden as a blip in American history, a sort of return to normalcy that is not terribly long lasting, or whether the country has truly turned away from the America firstism of uh, of Donald Trump. And they know they're not going to know that for two and a half years. Yeah, although there may be some clues along the way. You know, Rosa, when I think about this, we're foreign policy nerds. So we go, oh, wow, NATO has Finland and Sweden in it. NATO is more unified than ever. And the first time, you know, we had Asian leaders there because of this shift to China and America is well thought of. And frankly, those aspects of foreign policy that pertain to alliances look pretty good by and large. And there have been some significant successes. Last year, there were a lot of economic successes for the Biden administration. More jobs created in the last three Republican administrations added up record growth that hasn't been seen in decades, major legislation passed, including some on a bipartisan basis, ranging from infrastructure to guns. And I saw a poll this morning, a Monmouth poll, that showed that 
something like 10 or 11% of Americans thought we were on the right track and 88% thought we were on the wrong track as a country. So it seems like for all these successes, it's not resonating with the American people. You've just been out there in the middle of America for a month. How do you reckon that? I think there are two things going on there. Um, One is all the things you just mentioned, great as they are, don't don't compensate the sort of average American for the impact of incredibly high inflation. I think that that is hitting people directly in the wallet right now. And it's very scary. And none of the news is particularly good on that front. I don't, I don't think there's any real sense that, oh, this is just a blip. It'll end in a couple months or something like that. I think there's a real sense of this is going to endure and, and people's wage increases are not keeping pace with inflation. So there is a real sense of, I think, anxiety, as, as you know, David, an astonishingly high percentage of Americans really do live paycheck to paycheck. You know, whenever they do these studies on how many Americans have, you know, emergency funds or, or would be really wiped out if they had a small expense of, you know, a few hundred dollars, uh, it's, an, it's an incredibly high number. So, you know, the rise in inflation it really hits a lot of Americans quite hard and is forcing penny pinching and cutbacks uh, and is very painful for people. So I think that's one piece of it. You know, it doesn't really do people much good if there's job growth and so on and infrastructure bill if they're having trouble buying groceries uh, or getting gas for their car. I think the other thing that's going on that is specific to that kind of poll, the sort of satisfaction of the direction of the country, is that it, it, it doesn't just reflect people's sense of what has been happening, but it also reflects their sense of future threats. And I think that there is a very widespread sense of, of anxiety about what the future holds for the country. The majority of Americans, as you know, are not far right. The majority of Americans support abortion rights, for instance. The majority of Americans support tighter gun control. We have a Supreme Court that's out of step with the majority of Americans. And even more frightening, we have such threats to our, the integrity of our electoral system that we cannot just say to ourselves, well, you know, majorities views on these things will ultimately prevail in terms of who ends up being elected to Congress, who ends up being in the Senate, who ends up becoming president. In fact, I think increasingly Americans feel, particularly the Democratic Party and many independents feel very helpless because they feel that it, in fact, uh, you know, the, the Republican falsehood that the 2020 election was stolen may very well become a reality of future elections being stolen by the Republicans. And, you know, it doesn't make people feel positive or optimistic about the future of the country. And I think that's what you see reflected, a sense that we are going to face growing political conflict, uh, including violent conflict, that we are going to see increasingly uh, the country veering in a direction that most Americans don't want it to veer in, but, but fear they will have little ability to prevent. You know, David, on that last thought from Rosa, it's really remarkable if you think that in 2016, our concern was foreign interference with domestic elections. And for 2024 and maybe for 2022, our concern is domestic interference with domestic elections. It goes further than that. The Supreme Court agreed to take a case that could, in the next year, give the states enormous latitude in determining how they handle issues like electors and so forth. And that could make the big lie into something that 
is institutionalized or that that kind of partisan handling of election outcomes, something that we would have to come to expect. One of the things that strikes me about this is a kind of strange political dissonance that I don't know that I recall in my life. There's always been a sense of people's frustrations with Washington, whether it was gridlock or hyperpartisanship. But there is a sense at the moment, and I think this, this very right-leaning Supreme Court is part of that, where you can take issue after issue. Rosa began to do the list, but it can be abortion rights or gun rights or fairer taxes or education reform or fighting uh, climate change or et cetera, et cetera. And two-thirds or more of the American people support it. And yet you can't get any progress on any of those things because of the way the system is wired. So there's kind of political dissonance. Washington doesn't connect to the rest of the country. The majority of people don't have a lot of hope that their views are going to get translated into action. That's dysfunction. That's, that's a breakdown. That's not the way the system is supposed to work. But there's every sign that it's going to get worse. We are in the midst of a slow burn constitutional crisis in America. It's been going on for a number of years, but it's getting worse. The burn is getting uh, hotter. And it's extremely hard to see how we stop that, that we get into a different narrative. Francis Fukuyama talks about vetocracies. Well, we have a situation where even when the Democrats are in majorities at the federal level, they can't get much done, except in very improbable circumstances of having more than 60 seats in the Senate, which is just not going to happen. And the system, as you say, is not, is not functioning the way it was designed. Well, it was designed to prevent, in Topville's words, the tyranny of the majority. It's now, it had those famous checks and balances, but presumed a degree of cooperation on issues of overriding common interest. But what we have now, I think, is the tyranny of the minority. And that's, that's really crystallized in the Supreme Court. 6-3, you know, as far as the eye can see, even if the Democrats, a highly improbable situation, had unified control of Washington, of, of Congress and, and the White House for the next six years, that 6-3 split is unlikely to change, at best maybe 5-4. So this is something I think that justifies the, the fatalism you and Rosa have been talking about. We've got probably... 15, 20 years now of Trump's most enduring legacy, which is, a, I think, a theocratic Supreme Court. I mean, I don't want to indulge in too much hyperbole, but when I saw the, the other day somebody likening this Supreme Court's agenda, Clarence Thomas, of course, in one recent ruling saying we should look at Lawrence, we should look at Griswold, we should look at Obergefell, namely uh, anti-sodomy, contraception, and gay marriage that is more, more akin to the Council of Guardians in Iran, the, the body of, of mullahs that oversees and basically is far, far senior to the elected representatives of the country than it is to legal systems and constitutional courts in other democracies. You go to Germany, go to Belgium, go to France and ask them the name, names of their senior judges on the constitutional court. Nobody has a clue. Nobody has a clue who they are because they're not that important. And because there isn't this massive sort of challenge to 
common sense thinking about the evolution of laws and constitutions to keep pace with time. Originalism is an original and unique American concept. So I understand this fatalism and I'm racking my brains to find how we break out of this narrative. I don't know other than improbably large democratic majorities that could happen. I would add, by the way, and and Rosa as a constitutional law scholar, you know, can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the term for original, you know, originalism is actually a crock of shit because the, is that, isn't that the term? It's because, because, you know, when you say the second amendment guarantees something, it doesn't begin to guarantee or that in cases like abortion, we should be looking at history and tradition when you, in one, you know, on, on the case of abortion, you're granting a sweeping power to the courts and the federal government. And on the case of gun rights, you're saying, no, this must be up to the states. When it's completely hypocritical, when you have justices citing judges who were known for presiding over witch trials, and, and in another instance, a judge, Clarence Thomas, suggesting that uh, the COVID vaccine came from aborted fetuses. There's nothing original. I mean, it's original thinking, but it has nothing to do with the original text of the Constitution. I would actually disagree with that. I think the problem is different. I think that it is possible to make an intellectually coherent originalist argument for reaching the results the Supreme Court has recently reached on abortion, on gun control, et cetera. I think the fundamental problem is not that they're interpreting constitutional text in a manner that is incoherent. I think the real problem is that we as Americans accept the notion that a document, you know, that was drafted and adopted, itself adopted in an extra legal fashion in 1787 by a tiny elite group of, you know, white male slaveholders should be binding on us today. I mean, that's the crazy thing, right? We treat our constitution like it's, you know, Moses came, got it out of the burning bush from God or something, like it's revealed truth. And we bizarrely view ourselves as permanently bound by, by a text that, even if the framers were the wisest, the noblest, the best of the best of the best of the best, you know, it's nuts, right? Frankly, it is just nuts. I think that is the thing that is really crippling us right now. It's, it's, it's not the fact that we have justices who are interpreting this particular text in an incoherent way. Sometimes that's the problem, but I don't think that's the biggest problem we face. I think the biggest problem is that we are, we are stuck with a document with our whole political system insists that we've got these, you know, nine unelected people who interpret an ancient document that is in many ways largely irrelevant to the problems that we now face and that political theorists and political scientists today would say, boy, that doesn't make much sense as a way to organize a government. <laughs> you know, that's the big problem. David, does this mean that Joe Biden is politically doomed because, A, this dysfunction will continue without any intervention you know, from him, nothing he can do about it, and that's going to breed frustration and make his admonition that, you know, people just vote and hope it changes seem weak and be some of the economic issues that he is being burdened with have nothing to do with actions that he's taken or very little to do with actions that he's taken. There is a, you know, the inflation is a global phenomenon. It's driven by 
a number of external factors. And if there is one driving domestic factor, it's that domestic oil companies are choosing to go for very large profit margins, even as the price of gasoline fails. But the point is, it's hard to see how he can do something to transform that right track, wrong track perception, given, given these, these factors, David. So he doesn't have many options. And if he loses the house in the fall, which seems to be the likely scenario, he'll have even fewer options. His domestic agenda will essentially be over at that time, although his record of getting things through House and Senate together, even when he's had very narrow majorities in both, has been you know, not what, what many of his supporters hoped. I think, David, he's got three big challenges. I think you, you touched on uh, a few of them. The biggest of those is economic, right? I mean, if people are paying $6 a gallon or even five, they're really not interested in whether or not he believes that it's Putin's price in, uh, increase, as he has said, or it's the oil companies gouging consumers, as he tweeted over uh, the weekend, only to get shot back at by Jeff Bezos. But they only know what they're paying, and they're likely to blame him, or at least it'll become a big talking point for the Republicans. Second, if the high interest rates that we are in right now lead to a recession, even a mild one, he would have to show that the U.S. was coming out of that and back to growth by the time Election Day arrived. Thirdly, it depends on who he's running against and whether he is blamed more than the other guy. If it's Donald Trump, which I think is less likely than some of the other possibilities, then I think he can make a reasonable argument that Trump set up much of the disillusionment in the American institutions and undercut those institutions and attempted to undercut the election. If it is somebody who is a more moderate Republican, then I think he's got a much, much harder road to go. And then, of course, there are always the overriding issues of his age. He'd be 82 when inaugurated 86 at the end of a second term. You know, before we started this podcast, I thought this is the direction this conversation would head. And so I thought, well, we should call this podcast Ain't No Cure for the Summertime Blues. And, uh, you know, you certainly lived up to it so far. We've got 15 minutes to go. This is where we take a break. Uh, we say uh, saving the good news for the last 15 minutes. The last, yeah, the, the, the solutions will come in. The last 15 minutes and also great stock tips. Um, this is also but, where we, we all sing Gershwin's Summertime. Yeah, Summertime. Exactly. I'll go get my wife, the singer, to come in to add to that. But uh, in any event, uh, for those of you who are not members, we say bye-bye. And uh, why don't you go become a member? It doesn't cost that much. And then you'll get all the benefit of of this, listening to Ed sing Summertime and other things. And uh, And you should do that. And then listen to the rest of the show. For those of you who are members, we'll be right back. So, Ed, I read all this stuff in the Financial Times, the New York Times, and Washington Post, and on Twitter, and so forth. And I get this impression, and David hinted at it earlier, that the world has just got Ukraine fatigue. That, you know, there is this war going on that it's been a tough slog in the East. The Russians have actually made some progress. 
people are starting to look at the winter. They're worried about gas prices. And what got off to a very good start might not come to a very happy conclusion in the, the months ahead. And I'd really be interested in the thoughts of all three of you on this, starting with you, Ed. It's a variegated picture because um, the NATO summit was peak Western unity of recent years. This was a very strong and unified summit, and it didn't just include NATO members. It included four Asian allies, uh, including Australia and New Zealand. And so within the West, sort of loosely defined, you've never seen more unity at the, the heads of state level. But if you look at what's happening on the ground, politically in Europe, and of course, militarily in Ukraine, you get real variegation. I mean, you've got sort of two fronts, the one in the south, probably the more important one for Ukraine right now, because it wants to get access back to the Black Sea. It needs to earn revenues. It needs to export its wheat and its commodities. And Russia continues to blockade. But the, the Ukrainians have been making some gains in Kherson and uh, uh, apparently limbering up for a more sustained assault on the Russian control of Kherson, which would open up the Black Sea again. The Russians also um, vacated Snake Island, the famous fuck you Russia island. They said they were doing it, as a, Putin said, as a goodwill gesture, which of course was complete bullshit. They, they retook it, partly with the help of these harpoon missiles that they've been getting from the West. But then in the East, Russia continues this slow, relentless grind towards capturing the whole of Donbass. And, you know, you can very easily, and these conversations were coming up in Helsinki, and there were a lot of Baltic and Nordic leaders there, whom I chatted to a few of. But you can see a situation where Russia does gain control of, of the Donbass, full control of the Donbass, which would involve many months more fighting and many tens of thousands more deaths on both sides. And then it, it, it extends Russia's nuclear umbrella over the region, basically incorporates into Russia. And what do we do then? Well, you know, what, what, what's going through Western minds at this point? I mentioned Poland and the Baltics. They are very gung-ho. This is uh, absolutely existential for them, but it isn't for Italians, or at least in the minds of Italians and French and Germans and Spanish. And we're going to still, this winter, in spite of all the EU pledges to wean themselves off Russian gas, that's going to take a couple of years. So this winter, we're probably going to be at peak Putin weaponization of fossil fuels. He knows that uh, the EU is not that far from a recession. And even if it doesn't technically enter recession, it feels like recession to people. And that's all that matters politically. And if you get a winter where gas price inflation is you know, double what it is now, which is already at sort of 40-year peaks, then the unity of the West, I think, might make last week's Madrid-NATO summit look like peak, a peak moment. And that I, think is, that, I think, is the concern. It costs $7 billion a month to keep Ukraine going in terms of financial support, in terms of military support. I don't know how much longer the West is going to uncomplainingly stump up that money. It should. But the longer this goes on, the more that fatigue that you mentioned is going to become a problem. I would argue that the moment for the fatigue has already arrived, that most of the money that you saw clear very quickly through Congress is probably 
going to be viewed as the peak of U.S. contributions. That will play out through September. But remember that that money not only includes weapons, but $1.5 billion a month just to keep the Ukrainian government running, which is supposed to be matched by another $3.5 billion from the other allies. The interesting question is, does all that money show up? And who's willing to keep financing Ukraine past that moment? Second, let's assume for a moment that the Russian gains in the East and the South remain relatively stable. In other words, that the Ukrainians are not able to gain back much of that land. Does it make a difference to the West that you've got a 20% smaller Ukraine? Does that affect their ability to enter the EU, even though that would take many years? Their eventual ability to join NATO? Does it affect when they can begin negotiations with the Russians? Do they acknowledge as a de facto matter that the Russians are occupying that territory, even if they argue that it is truly Ukrainian territory? So I think we're into the much harder part of the war here, where, as Ed pointed out, the European unity is going to be under pressure because of the gas and oil. The American role in this is going to be under pressure because people will be tiring of the high gas prices and the continued support. And the Ukrainian ability to stay unified on a strategy may also show a few fractures. I think that's right. I mean, and and the last thing David said, I, I think it's inevitable. You know, the Ukrainians at this point seem to be taking very heavy casualties. And Notwithstanding what the political leadership is saying right now, it's it's quite easy to imagine a substantial majority of Ukrainians six months down the road saying, forget the Donbass, it's not worth continuing to sacrifice so many people. You know, with the, we, that Ukraine did not have obviously full control over that region a year ago. So what exactly has changed if you're an ordinary Ukrainian? You just say, fine, give it to them. Not happy about it, but it's just, you know, how many more lives will we sacrifice to maintain, you know, to recapture control over that region? So I, I do think that, that, as I think David and Ed are exactly right, I think, I, I also think <laughs> Americans being a, a shallow people, we love a winner. In the early stages of the Ukraine war, when the plucky Ukrainians were, were racking up substantial victories against Goliath in, you know, in the form of the Russian military, people were very excited. And there was a sense of like, woohoo, wow, they might really actually win this thing. And now, now that we're back, now that we're in the quagmire phase and the you know, long, slow slog, lots of casualties, not a huge amount of rapid change uh, in, in the in the state of uh, affairs on the on the ground. I think that again, it, in terms of the American public and to and many Western publics, there's a little bit of a sense of okay, this was really cool and exciting for a while, but it's not anymore. You know, now it's boring, and we don't know where Donbass is anyway. So why can't these people just you know why why do we have to keep sending money to these these people forever and ever? And I, and I do think that that almost always happens. That is the pattern of American public support, which translates into congressional authorizations and appropriations when it comes for aid to foreign countries. So I yes, I, I think I think it is I think it is quite likely, you know, barring some significant shift on the ground, that Western support will begin to taper off and Ukrainian enthusiasm will also begin to to taper off. 
And, and that may be the right thing, right? I mean, the Russians have experienced enormous setbacks to the extent that we don't want the Russians to be able to experience a real victory, that there is no victory anymore for them. You know, there are greater and lesser degrees of further catastrophe and humiliation, but there really is no victory for them. And I don't think it would necessarily be at all wrong for the Ukrainian people to to decide that it's not worth sacrificing so many more lives. Uh, they've, They've already gained a tremendous amount in intangibles, and maybe it doesn't matter that much. Maybe it's not worth those lives. I think Rose is correct on that. But remember, if you're, if you're going to end the war, that involves lifting sanctions on Russia. And for Ukraine and the West, but Ukraine in particular, to agree to lift sanctions on Russia, there's going to have to be war crimes. There's going to have to be some accounting for Russian war crimes in Ukraine. Are the Russians going to agree to that? You know, I think Russia's made, made a bet. It's, it's thrown in, it's thrown in its lot. It's, it's basically betting it can survive as a sort of giant Iran. Eurasian Iran. It'll it'll sell fossil fuels. It'll keep itself going. It won't be as wealthy or as oligarch-ridden as during the pre-February 24th period. But it's made a bet it can be a it can be a semi-pariah or, or a full pariah to the West and subsist and continue and be militarily strong. Would it agree to these kinds of terms to end the war? I'm I'm not sure that saying. Ukrainians are going to get fatigue, and we will have already long since had fatigue, and therefore will at some point sort of agree to split the difference and end the war. It takes into account the complexity of what is involved in ending a war. Under what conditions will we lift sanctions on Russia? And I don't believe, I don't believe Ukraine, for one, would agree to lifting any sanctions on Russia. Italy might be enthusiastic, but Poland, the Baltics, the Nordics, Britain probably would not be keen on doing so unless there were accounting for Russian war crimes, but also unless there was some kind of undertaking that this wasn't just a pause before Russia resumes its intention of regaining the whole of Ukraine. But, but I guess, I mean, this is a question, you may very well be right, Ed, but, but why do you think that the only way to end the war would involve lifting the vast majority of the sanctions. I mean, I mean, the Russians have some incentives to stop fighting too, obviously, because they're also losing a tremendous number of people. And even if they come out of this with no more active conflict, but controlling the region that they wanted to control and the same sanctions, do we think that there's no scenario in which that's still worth it to them? Without Russian reparations for the for the what 500 billion euros worth of damage done to ukraine without russian accounting for people within its ranks who've committed war crimes i don't think ukraine would be prepared to end the war without those two and you know i think hating to be caught in agreement with ed here but the fact of the matter is that imagine politically how difficult it would be for Biden to begin reversing sanctions after all he has said. I mean, his press conference in uh, the other day uh, at the NATO meeting in Madrid was the most Cold War sounding element. You know, he's asked, how long should Americans be willing to pay the price of gasoline? And he said, basically, as long as the Russians are inside Ukraine. Well, the Russians are going to be inside Ukraine for some time, we think. And how long they're there is not within his control. What is within his control is lifting the export sanctions 
and some of the other sanctions. It's really hard for me to imagine him doing that, except if Zelensky, President Zelensky, comes out and publicly urges him to do so. And I'm just having a hard time understanding the political scenario under which that happens. So I think we're going to be frozen in place for some time. I think, you know, you can end with a truce, a ceasefire, something that, you know, looks to the people of the world like the fighting has stopped and there'll be a lot of open political issues for a long time. And I think the evidence that that kind of sort of semi-state of war or semi-state of peace can endure comes from the fact that Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. And for, you know, eight years, we didn't pay it much attention. And so if we could go in and, and they stop shooting at each other and the Russians withdraw a little bit and both sides tamp down hostilities a little bit or a lot, and then say, now we must negotiate these other issues that could go on for a long time. It could go on for a long time and serve the purposes of all the parties. In any event, we'll keep watching this. I absolutely guarantee that the next time we all get together here, we'll focus on something optimistic. Uh, it's summertime, and I, you know, it, it may just be pie recipes or something, but we will find something positive to uh, focus on. Maybe we can uh, have pet day at Deep Sea. Pet day. We'll bring your dog. And my dog and David's lovely dog, Poppy, and Ed, do you have any living pets at the moment? Two cats and a dead rabbit. The dead rabbit will come. Don't bring the dead rabbit, please. (laughs) We'll be back with our regular shows at their regular times, and we hope you'll join us for them. And in the meantime, thank you, Ed. Thank you, David. Thank you, Rosa. Thanks to everybody for listening, and uh, stay healthy. Bye-bye.